Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, We are in week five of a series that we're calling The Meaning of the Cross. Uh, We're seeking to gain wisdom, knowledge, and insight, and really language for thinking about the cross uh, so that we can have a more robust faith. Uh, My hope is that in seeing the cross in all of these ways, it will not just make us more knowledgeable uh, and kind of give us um, more theological knowledge, but my real hope is that, as we've just prayed, that it will form and shape our lives, that, uh, that our lives as Christians would begin to take on a cruciform look. And when we say cruciform, that's a fancy theological word or word that theologians made up to say that the life of Christians, if the cross is central to our faith, then the life of Christians should look a lot like what we see, what we learn about the character of God from Christ on the cross. And so my prayer is just exactly that, that as we gain more knowledge and wisdom and insight, that we would then have maybe some ideas, we could depend on the leadership of the Spirit of God to lead us into more cruciform ways of living. Now, I mentioned this on the first week of the series, but we're five weeks later, and a lot has happened since then. So let me remind you uh, that when I say the cross, I am the, the, the resurrection of Christ is assumed. Uh, that when I say what took place on the cross, what was accomplished on the cross, what happened on the cross, I'm never talking about the cross just in isolation, but I'm, I'm assuming also the resurrection. If you take away the resurrection of Christ, what you have is a, a, a criminal of Rome killed on a cross, which is a rather common thing in history. So when we think about the work of Jesus on the cross, we are assuming the resurrection. Uh, and so this, so the meaning of the cross series is actually going to end on Easter Sunday, and we're going to learn that the cross is the death that conquers death, uh, and it's going to be a great time. So, but I, I just wanted to mention that that we that you can't so easily talk about the cross and resurrection in isolation. You must always talk about them together, uh, and so I wanted to make sure that we understood that. Again, my hope and prayer is that our lives would be shaped in in how we understand the cross. So let me just briefly review. Uh, We've learned in week one that the cross is the point of eternal forgiveness. In week two, Daniel helped us to see that the cross is the enduring model of discipleship. Uh, Then we learned in week three, the cross is the pinnacle of divine self-revelation. The cross is the pinnacle of divine self-revelation. The cross of Jesus Christ is essentially God saying, this is what I am like. If you want to know the essence of my character, look at the cross of Jesus. And then last week we learned that it's the beauty that will save the world. Uh, today I, want, I hope that we'll come to see that the cross is the axis of love that refounds the world. I hope we'll come to see that the cross is the axis of love that refounds the world. I want to read John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. Uh, we'll read through verse 33 today. So John chapter 20, beginning with verse uh, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. 
uh, says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. For very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. Here, Jesus is beginning to predict his own death. And he says, now my soul is troubled, for what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, and it, was, and it thundered, and others said that an angel had spoken to him. Now Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. For now is the time for judgment of this, on this world, and now is the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jesus says some interesting things in this passage. Similar to, to um, last week, I want to talk to you more philosophically than exegetically today. That's a little bit of a departure from what I normally do. Uh, but I want to talk to you kind of using this passage as a basis to begin thinking uh, philosophically about what was accomplished on the cross. But Jesus does say some interesting things. He says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, when Jesus, in the Gospel of John, talks about being glorified, he is talking about going to the cross. The glory of Jesus is paradoxically the cross. Uh, the earliest, which is to say that, that the earliest theologians, uh, when, they, when they looked at the cross, they were able to see past the ugly surface of the cross and begin to discern deeper meanings, and we see this in their writings. So for John, the cross is not the humiliation of Christ, it is the glory, the glory of Christ. So for, the, for John in his gospel, uh, the cross is not a humiliation for Jesus, it is the very glory of Jesus. So when, when Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be glorified, have in your mind that he's talking about his own death and his, his going to the cross. And in fact, as a great, good hint for that, the heading, on, at least in my Bible, for the passage that we just read was Jesus predicts his death. And in that, we have all sorts of talk of being lifted up and being glorified. So we see this in the Gospel of John. Now, for the Apostle Paul, the cross is not the shaming of Christ. It is rather the shaming of the principalities and powers. And we're going to talk about that next week. Okay? So it isn't Christ on the cross who's being shamed, but it's the principalities and powers of the world that are being brought to shame on the cross for the Apostle Paul. And so again, the earliest theologians that we have record of looked at the ugliness of the cross, 
saw past that ugliness to discern a deeper meaning by faith and began to see the beauty of the cross, to tie in our theme from last week. So in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about glorification or being lifted up, he's referring to his death on the cross. For John, this is the coronation of Jesus as king over the whole world. For John, who in his gospel, the cross is the coronation of the king of the world. Are you with me? And so they were, again, they're, they're kind of seeing the cross not just for what it is on the surface, but they're seeing a deeper meaning. They're looking at the cross through the eyes of faith, and our task today is exactly the same. Now, multiple times, Jesus predicts his own death to, in Jerusalem to his disciples. Uh, it's nothing new for Jesus to predict his own death. Um, he, he, in fact, told them, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. But each time he mentions this, the disciples don't know what he means. <laughs> they don't get it, right? Uh, they could not make sense of what he was saying uh, because they simply do not have a frame of reference for messiahs to die. This does not happen. It should not happen. It cannot happen in the mind of the disciples. So when Jesus begins predicting, predicting his own death, in rather explicit terms, the disciples just aren't catching on, right? Uh, but this time that Jesus predicts his death in John chapter 12 is actually quite different because this is the only time where Jesus himself provides us with some interpretive meaning for his own death. Okay, he tells us not only that he's going to die, but Jesus also points us in the direction of what it's going to mean for him to do so. So Jesus says three things about his own death in this passage, and three things that will have such an impact that, will, that it will, in effect, refound the world. Okay? He mentions three things, interpretive meanings about his death that will have such an effect that they will essentially refound the world. He says that his death is judgment of the world. He says that his death is going to cast out the ruler of the world, or the NIV, the prince of the world. It will cast out the evil one. So at, at Jesus' death, Jesus is saying the world will be brought to judgment, the evil one will be cast out, and all people will be drawn unto me. This is Jesus giving us interpretive meaning to his own death. The third one is what I want to focus on today. That the whole world will be drawn to Christ. And I don't want to talk about... Um, I don't want to talk about this in explicit means, uh, in other words, who will be drawn, uh, but, but rather why or how. And that is that through the death of Jesus, the world is refounded on an axis of love. And that axis of love begins to draw people to Jesus. Uh, and so, in order to get there, we need to, as we often do, begin at the beginning. <laughs> so, like, 
basically you have to understand Genesis to understand the scriptures, right? Like almost all the time we got to go back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, there was Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam or Adam means humanity. Eve means life. So humanity and life had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. And to be a farmer, you have to settle on land and you have to cultivate it. So agriculture, historians tell us that the development of agriculture, like cultivating the land and growing things, not just for your own family, but for a collection of people was actually the very thing that gave rise to civilization. Because you, you have to settle on a land, you have to pick a spot, and then you have to build a shelter, you have to find sources of food and water, and you need help working the land so you have lots of babies. That's supposed to be just a little bit funny, but, I, like, but, but all of you just took it so seriously, right? So, uh, so you need help working the land so you have some kids, and then those kids marry neighbor kids, right? Some nearby kids, and then you have this kind of rise of uh, like civilization because of farming. Abel, though. He was not a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. And he belonged to a class of people that believed that, that land was not to be owned, but instead you just, you just lived simply and you moved with the flock from pasture to pasture. The land did not belong to any one person or group of people. The land belonged to all of us. And so you just were nomadic and you lived wherever the, you, you followed the flocks around. And so the, you have a farmer and a shepherd. And these two brothers got into conflict. These two brothers that represent two tribes, two ways of seeing the world, right? Two different ways of approaching life and work in the world began to have a conflict. And the conflict likely, we don't know for sure, but the conflict likely was over land. Could land be owned? Who could own the land? How do we know who owns the land? All of these kinds of things. The conflict became so great that on a piece of land in a field, that became the very first battlefield, Cain killed his brother Abel. And then he tries to justify it. Cain tries to justify killing his brother Abel. He tries to justify it to himself. He tries to justify it to God. And he thinks to himself, you know, this had to be done. There was no other way. And he uttered the now famous words to God, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, Cain tried to make his brother the enemy other. Cain tried to make his, his, his own brother, his own flesh and blood, he kind of justified it all and he said, this, this, there was no other way around this. This person had to be made into the enemy other. As a result, Cain was kicked out of the Garden of Eden and he moved east of Eden and established the first city. There's this, um, th it's not really a metaphor, but there's, there's this um, literary function in the scriptures where movement east is movement away from God. And so they're kicked out of the garden and they go eastward. Okay, so it, like in Genesis, 
Eastern movement is movement away from God. Western movement is movement toward God. And I'll just let that kind of be however you want. Just let that marinate the next time you read through Genesis. So Cain is kicked out of the garden. He goes east of Eden. He establishes the first city. And what we can say is this. After killing his brother, making his brother the enemy other, then establishing the first city, what we know now is that the first city is organized around an axis of power enforced through violence. The first city ever established is organized around an axis of power that is enforced through violence. Now, these two figures, Cain and Abel, are at the same time real historical figures and also serve for us as archetypal figures at the very same time. So they are archetypal figures that show us that the first human city and subsequent cities are then organized around an axis of power that's enforced through violence. And so throughout history, this is the way that you begin to assert dominance. And so what you have is the rise of empires that are all largely founded, protected, and eventually overthrown through the use of violence. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then the time of Jesus, Rome. In fact, this idea of how civilizations are organized has become so ingrained in the human culture that most of us will assume there is no other possibility. This is just the way things are. And on one hand, you are right. This is the way things are. The story of Cain and Abel is an archetypal story that reminds us about the systems, a system our civilization is built upon, the, power, the system of power enforced through violence. We would rather keep this hidden, uh, and we're not so upfront about it, but it is nevertheless there. And this axis of organization actually plays out in everything from global politics to local playgrounds. That the way you gain power, the way you assert dominance, is mostly through violence, whether that violence be physical or verbal or otherwise. This is how you assert and gain dominance. Um, I'm almost embarrassed to say that our family watched the, the, um, the high school movie Mean Girls from a few years ago. Remember that? Like, this is just, this is not quality cinema. I'm not recommending it from the pulpit. I'm just simply confessing to you all, okay? And in that, you have people asserting and gaining dominance through verbal violence, right? That's it. So this, this, this whole like axis of organization that we seem to all revolve around plays itself out from everything to global political scale to local playgrounds and, lunch, and high school lunchrooms, right? And so... This is how we just sort of understand that how you get power, how you keep power, is through violence or the threat of violence. And in fact, this isn't a new story. In fact, it's a story that has been told again and again. So it's the story of Cain and Abel, and that's really what the biblical story wants us to kind of begin to see and capture and get a hold of, right? If we're really listening to the story uh, of Cain and Abel, then we'll begin to capture that. 
Uh, but it's not just the story of Cain and Abel. It's actually the, it's the same story as Romulus and Remus. Have you heard this story? Romulus and Remus is the foundational myth of Rome. Two twin brothers have a conflict over where their, sh- their city should be established and then who should rule over that city. But because these two brothers can't agree on a location of the city or who of the two brothers would rule over the city, what they do is they begin to each build their own city and fortify it with a wall. And here's how this story goes down according to the website of Washington University. Quote, Remus, in a fury jumped over the walls that Romulus was building to prove, that Ro- to prove to Romulus how weak his city was. But Romulus killed his brother out of anger, showing all of his people that anyone who ever dared to challenge Rome would pay for it with their life. End quote. And so Romulus kills his twin brother Remus and names the city after himself. Roma. Rome. I mean, it's actually built into the very founding and culture of Rome that if you go against the way of Rome, you will pay for it with your life. And isn't it true what we know about ancient Rome? They carried that through pretty well, right? And so it's not just the story of Cain and Abel. It's also actually the archetypal story, the mythical story of Romulus and Remus. But you might know this story a little better. It's also the story of Smeagol and Deagle, who on Smeagol's birthday killed his cousin Deagle because he wanted a ring that Deagle had found in the river. And why would you kill your cousin over a silly ring? I'll bet you know. Because it's the ring of power. And Smeagol, who would later become Gollum, is so captured by the pull of power that he kills for it. These stories all point us to the dark truth that the fallen world is organized around an axis of power that is enforced through violence. And we're never quite upfront about it, but this is in fact the case. So when someone says, this is just the way the world works... They are, in fact, right. But, Lord Jesus, would you give us a prophetic imagination? Would you expand our hearts to help us see that it does not have to be this way? Jesus came into the world, and in his death, shone a bright light on the ugliness that was previously in the dark and refounded the world. Thanks be to God. Let's recount the events of the first Good Friday. Having been betrayed by one of his disciples, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. After his arrest, things escalate to the point of him standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. As Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate asks him an actually really loaded question. Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? 
But at the first time that Pilate meets Jesus, it feels like he's not all that interested in the answer. Because before Jesus replies, and, and as Jesus often does, probably there was a pause. And I don't even know if Jesus intended to answer. But before the, the, an answer is ever given, Pilate gives the, the command that Jesus be flogged. Because after all, this is the way of Rome. If you come against the way of Rome, if you threaten the way of Rome, you will pay for it with your life. Now this guy hasn't done anything too far yet, and so let's just get a good beating out of him. And that'll straighten things out, and that'll end this whole, this, that'll end this whole debate. And so early on Friday morning, Jesus was flogged. Flogging is a brutal beating for anyone who dared to oppose Rome in the, in the vein of Romulus and Remus. And the beating included getting beaten with rods and whips. Often those whips would have shrapnel attached on the ends of them that would grip and then rip the flesh. But this is a dime a dozen in Rome. And Roman soldiers had gotten so used to abusing human bodies that it became a kind of sport. And so early on a Friday morning, as Roman centurions were given something to do, flog this man, they began to make a sport of it. And they say to one another, what, did th what is this guy accused of? Another one responds, oh, he's accused of being the king of the Jews. Another one says in a jeering voice, well, he doesn't look much like a king, now does he? And so he goes and he finds a purple robe and he drapes it over Jesus' bloody body. There, that's looking a little better. Now he looks more like a king. And then one says, well, if he's a king, then he also needs a scepter. And so he goes and gets a bamboo rod, beats Jesus with it before he places it beside him. Now Jesus has a purple robe draped over his bloody body, has a scepter right next to him. And then a real enterprising Roman centurion goes up and says, well, a real king needs a crown. And so he goes and he fashions a crown of thorns and he places it on Jesus's head and streams of blood blood run down his face and they say oh now we have a king don't we and in this macabre ceremony and where rome was actually intending to mock and jeer at the so-called king of the jews the whole irony of the thing is that in fact this is the very coronation of the world's true king In fact, after all this mocking, in mockery, they bow down before Jesus as a king. Who's the king now? You see, the only way that they understood that the world works is it revolves around an axis of power that's enforced through violence. And Jesus had threatened that. Jesus had come against that. Jesus had offered an alternative narrative. I mean, Jesus in his ministry was going around looking at people who culture was casting aside because of their disease, and he would go and he would heal them. Jesus was going and, and saying, forgive those who come against you. Love your enemies. This was not the Roman way. 
This was not the way the city had been founded in the mythical tale of Romulus and Remus. This is not the, the, the way that the world works according to Cain and Abel. This is not how things are according to Smeagol and Deagle. You see, these Roman centurions had, who beat Jesus' body had believed the same old, old, old lie that the world works and is organized around an axis of power enforced through violence. And so what they intended to be mockery of what would-be Roman insurrectionists was in fact the coronation of the world's true king. And this is what I want you to hear. This is the moment that the empire that had organized itself around an axis of power was trying to mock the Son of God and was instead being exposed as false. The very moment that the minions of the empire were trying to mock the Son of God is the very moment where, the, where their whole way of operating in the world is being exposed as false. Because instead of mocking a would-be king, they are bowing down to the world's true king. You with me? You see what's happening. After the flogging, Jesus appeared bloody before Pilate a second time. In their first meeting, Jesus had asked, or Pilate had asked Jesus a loaded question, what is truth? In their second meeting, Pilate actually answers his own question when he says this to Jesus in John chapter 19, verse 10. Don't you realize I have the power to either release you or to crucify you. In those moments, Pilate is revealing the truth that he has organized his life around. Pilate has believed Cain's old lie, the lie of Romulus, the lie of Smeagol, that the world revolves around an axis of power and ultimate power is the power to kill. What is truth? Pilate asks. He answers his own question. Jesus, don't you know I have the power to either crucify or to release you? Your life is quite literally in my hands. Jesus, quite brilliantly, as always, replies, you have no power except that which has been given to you from above. In other words, I'm operating according to a whole different authority. Jesus says as much when he says, yes, I'm, he says, are you, Pilate in other parts of the conversation will say, are you a king? And Jesus will simply say, my kingdom is not of this world. Which means the kingdom of Christ does not originate from this world, but it is for this world, right? Sometimes we've misunderstood that. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, we assume that the kingdom of God is kind of floaty up in the sky somewhere, this, that, or the other, right? And it's not of this world. It doesn't generate from this world. It doesn't operate according to the rules of this world, but the kingdom of Christ is for this world. Are you with me? That's Jesus's message. Well, Pilate asserting the only kind of power that he knows to assert sends Jesus to the cross. And so still wearing the crown of thorns, Jesus goes to the cross while being jeered 
and spat upon, for this is how Rome treats its enemies. Before he dies, he looks out on those who nailed him to, to the tree, to the cross. He looks at the mouths of those who spat on him. He looks at the faces of those who have mocked him, and he offers an announcement of forgiveness. After his death, in what I think is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture, a Roman centurion confesses, surely this man was the Son of God. Think about this. One of the Roman centurions, likely one of the Roman, one of the soldiers who participated in this whole thing or had a hand in it in some way, is right after the moment of Jesus' death is given new awareness, brought to new light, and he sees the ugliness of all that has just taken place. He sees the ugliness of the whole thing exposed, and he confesses, surely this man is the Son of God. Let me bring us back to John chapter 12. Do you remember in this passage, the, Jesus said he's going to draw all people to himself. And then the first to confess Jesus as the Son of God after his death is a Roman soldier. Do you see the weight of this? That Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the, the, the one for whom Israel had said, this is the one. And Rome said, we don't care. If you, you can have your Messiah, just keep your Rome too. And to which the people of Israel said, no, no, no. We have no other Lord but Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord, which is essentially a way of saying Caesar is not. And so Rome would have been fine if you just kind of mix a little bit of Rome with a little bit of Jesus Messiah. That's fine. No problem. But the people of Israel were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He was the inside crowd. And so they crucify him as one who causing problems. And the one is the king of the Jews, which, by the way, we already have one. Right. So he can't be. But Jesus says, I'm going to draw not just the people of Israel, but all people unto myself. And the very first person to confess Jesus as the Son of God after his death, moments after his death, is of all people a Roman centurion. To which I say, truly, Jesus the Christ offers the whole world a new way. Amen? Truly, Jesus the Christ offers the whole world a new way. And so we repeat the prayer, God, would you allow us to see beyond what we think is possible? Would you give us prophetic imaginations and would you expand our hearts to see a world that does not yet exist? To see the world as it one day will exist when your kingdom comes in all of its fullness. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead, showing that, in fact, 
love, forgiveness are the true powers of the world. Putting an ultimate mockery to an axis of power enforced through violence and refounds the world on an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. Truly, these are the powers of the world. What essentially happens is the death of Jesus confronts us with questions that this Roman soldier faced in the moment. Because again, this Roman soldier in, in kind of new awareness sees the whole situation in a different light. And I would invite us to consider the same questions. Is true power found in the one holding the hammer or the one with nail-pierced hands? Is true strength revealed in the one who mocks and spits or the one who offers forgiveness? And can we ask this question of ourselves honestly? Is the organizing principle of the world power or co-suffering love? These are the questions that confront us when we really consider the cross. And so this morning I would say to you, the organizing principle of the world does not have to be violent power, but it in fact can be co-suffering love. That we don't have to believe Cain's old lie and see our brother as the enemy other, but we can organize our lives around the Christ-centered truth that every human is my neighbor. And so, church, through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus refounds the world on an axis of love that is expressed through forgiveness as an alternative to the world being organized around an axis of power enforced through violence. And this is the type of beauty and mercy and love that will draw people into a new, a new orbit centered on Christ. This is the very thing that will draw people into a new orbit centered on Christ. This is the axis of love that refounds the world. Or I could just as appropriately say this week, this is the beauty that saves the world. And God, would you help us to live in this way? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we repeat the prayer that we've prayed already this morning, which is that you would expand our imaginations. It is so easy to believe that the ways in which our fallen world are organized are the only ways that we can organize ourselves and our own lives in the world. But God, today, would you help us to come to the foot of the cross, the very place where your character is expressed, where the kingdom of Christ is fully present, and having sitting, and then sitting at the foot of the cross, 
our lives would begin to orbit around an axis of love expressed through forgiveness. And God, may this not just be for ourselves, that we receive your love and your forgiveness. Thanks be to God. And if there's anyone here that has not yet come to a place in their life where they have received that from you, I pray, God, that they would. But Lord, having received that from you, may we then go out into the world as changed people who do not organize our lives or ourselves or our collective communities around the same old axis and believe the same old stories and the same old lies, but may we reorganize and refound ourselves on a new axis that brings us into a new orbit centered on Christ. And Lord, we recognize that this works itself out in a multitude of ways in our life, uh, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our uh, political views. All of these kinds of things need to be worked out with, with conversation and with discernment and in community with one another, and all while not demonizing the other or making our brothers into enemy others. And so, Lord, the work is hard. The truth is there. We accept it and we thank you for it. But the working out of the truth and the working out of our salvation, that's hard. It's difficult. And so God, help us. In these days where the church, where our culture is so divided, uh, help us, God, to center our lives on the axis of love, the orbit of Christ, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.